Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. This is episode number 217, and today in the show, I'm joined by Charles Post, Tyler Sharp, and Brad Nethery to discuss their new publication, Modern Huntsman, and the question of how we represent and communicate our hunting lifestyle. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. And today in the show, we've got an interesting and particularly unique episode. Uh, I, I think it's, it's a real thinker, I'd say. We're joined in this one, as I mentioned a second ago, by three guys who are involved in the publishing of a new premium print magazine called Modern Huntsman. And this publication is taking a really unique angle on hunting with a focus on framing most of their content in a way that it's more catered towards non-hunters or brand new hunters or maybe folks that have been intrigued by hunting by way of the local food movement, you know, that type of thing. And what's interesting is, at least from this team's perspective, much of the traditional hunting media available in the past hasn't necessarily spoken very well to these aforementioned groups. And Let's be honest, I think that if you took your non-hunting urban friend from work and stuck them in front of the TV to watch some big buck TV show or gave them a copy of a popular deer hunting magazine, do you think that they'd resonate with that material? You know, Do you really think they'd be intrigued to get involved after seeing dozens of pictures of big dead deer and articles about kinetic energy and food plots? Or what about after watching a guy fist pumping and hooting and hollering in a tree after shooting a deer? I think that while many of us within the hunting community might enjoy that kind of stuff, I think it is easy to see how this might not appeal as much to those on the outside looking in. But that's left this big gap between much of the content being produced and then the needs of a growing audience of people that are interested in hunting, maybe, but they're not knowing what to do with that intrigue. So that's where these guys, Brad, Tyler, and Charles, come in and their new project, Modern Huntsman. So today on the show, we chat with these guys about their inspiration for this new project and then the different issues that they're trying to address with this work. Stuff like how hunters communicate about hunting and the importance of improving the non-hunting world's perception of hunters and our role as hunters and conservationists moving forward into the future and, and just a whole lot more than that. And within this group, it's it's interesting because we have a relatively recently converted non-hunter to hunter. We have a professional photographer and hunter and videographer. We have a former vegetarian and ecologist and filmmaker. So needless to say, it's a conversation packed with, with just really unique ideas and opinions and perspectives, which are sometimes right in line with the things we typically talk about in the hunting world and sometimes quite different. So without further ado, let's take a quick break to thank our partners at Whitetail Properties, and then we'll get right to the episode. So as we've mentioned on many past episodes, Whitetail Properties and their land specialists, you know, in addition to being a go-to option for those interested in 
buying or selling recreational properties, they're also a great resource when it comes to learning more about hunting or managing land for wildlife. And their YouTube series called Landbeat is a perfect example of this. And just this week, they launched a new video about the value of working with a forester when developing a land management plan. And we've discussed this on past episodes, you know, the fact that how properly managing timber on a piece of ground can really benefit the wildlife you know, on your property. But, but knowing how to do this in the right way and how you can possibly financially benefit from two, you know, that's important to know before getting started. And that's what this video shares. It talks about exactly how a forester can help you do that. So if you're in a situation like this where land and timber management is on your horizon, but you're not exactly sure where to start or what to do next, I definitely recommend heading over to the Whitetail Properties YouTube channel and checking out this recent video, which is titled, quite poetically, I might add, Make Money on Your Timber, Consulting a Forester, What You Need to Know. I don't know if that's a haiku or something, but uh, it is a helpful short video, so check it out. And now, on to the show. All right, with me now, we've got a full house. I've got Brad, Tyler, and Charles all with me, and rather than beating around the bush, Brad, I wanted to start with you. Being the founder of Modern Huntsman, can you just set the stage for us? What is this? Why did you create this? How did the idea come about? Absolutely. So the whole concept started, um, I my background is as a non-hunter, um, <clears throat> and, and not necessarily somebody who had never hunted but somebody who really didn't associate with hunters in general. There was this disconnect with how I felt about hunting and the way that I uh, engaged in the land. Um, I was a meat eater and um, my, you know, I grew up in Texas and so hunting really isn't a negative topic here. It's just kind of, uh, you know, if you do it, great. If you don't, great. Um, and so given the luxury of choice between the grocery store field, I kind of felt like I was a more responsible human because I, I bought my meat rather than killing more animals. And that was a pretty accepted way of thinking. Um, but it was about five years ago that I was really uh, introduced with a, with a topic from a hunter who kind of poked and, and questioned, you know, if you eat meat and you're somebody who appreciates the outdoors, you're somebody who is, you know, for wildlife conservation, what is it about you that pushes you away from hunting? And it was a it was a question that I had to wrestle with um, and had to kind of force myself to give some thought to. And what I came up with was it wasn't that I was necessarily opposed to hunting because, you know, I'd grown up about once a year. Dad and I would go out in the field and go dove hunting and um, just to be together as father and son. It was not at all to be a serious hunter uh, by any means. We'd just be together. Um, and so when I was proposed, you know, when I was given the question, uh, I had to really think through, you know, why I was against it. So it wasn't that I was against hunting, but there was more so this this image that I had when somebody were to say, you know, that they are a hunter. I almost put this image in my head, and I, I didn't want to be that. Um, I didn't really know why. I just didn't want to be that. Um, so when I when I had to really wrestle with the question, what I came up with was there's a perception of hunting and hunters in America that really turns off the rest, the non-hunters, you know, the rest of America that quantifiably there's 67% of people in America who are agnostic to hunting. You know, they, they eat meat, they 
you know, they have an appreciation for wildlife. They've just never really been presented with hunting and they've never really haven't had a good opportunity to um, understand what hunting is all about. So as a, uh, as an entrepreneur and a serial, uh, you know, creator, I couldn't let this pass. And so I thought, man, we've got to create, I've got to create something that starts to open up hunting to non-hunters and gives them a reason to see this the way that I've seen this and shown kind of a new direction and a new vision in this. Um, and it really starts with the creatives and brands and organizations inside the industry that are telling the story in a way that's both approachable and, and aspirational to everybody who's really only seen, you know, kind of the one sided, which is not objectively wrong, but the camo, uh, uh, mindset. And so there was a lot of, uh, creatives in the space who were coming at it from a much more, um, not romantic perspective, but honest perspective. This story in a much larger format that I was able to digest and feel a connection to. And so I started an Instagram channel called modern huntsman. Um, and started to curate content from photographers and filmmakers and brands and organizations who I felt were were distributing this this media in a way that felt good, felt the way that I believe hunters feel um, whenever they whenever they hunt. And so, in doing that, um, we started to build this channel. Uh, me and and my my partner early on, and uh, when we when we got to a point of uh, about five weeks after we started the channel, we had about 5,000 followers and it was like, okay, this is, this is real. And this is a need in the industry. And the majority of the people that were following us were actually non hunters. So in light of that, um, I knew that this needed to expand out further. Um, so <clears throat> fate happened and uh, I met Tyler who um, had this vision that I had, um, but he has a totally different background as regard to, you know, being a hunter and a, uh, a, a filmmaker, photographer. Um, so I met him and we shared this similar vision and this, this similar approach to create a platform that we could um, present to both the hunting and the non-hunting communities that would conversation. Um, I'll let Tyler take it from here. Yeah, so without taking too much time on my background, I mean, I'm a photographer, writer, and director, and I've been working in the you know outdoor industry for the last 12 years, and a lot of the culmination of my frustration with my experience in the hunting industry and with uh, from without the hunting industry has kind of led to this, and the first time Brad and I met about three years ago, he kind of told me about what he was wanting to do, but wasn't sure which direction to take it. And I said, hey, I know this is going to sound weird because we just met, but what you're describing is probably going to be my life's work and you need to hire me as your creative director right now. <laughs> and he was like, okay, well, let's finish this coffee and we can talk about it. Um, and so, you know, I, I just, <laughs> I, you know, I, I traveled um, all over the world filming for several different hunting shows um, and just kind of had a, a little more of a traditional view of the hunting industry. And part of my frustration with that was that even though there are a lot of people who are dedicated conservationists, ethical hunters, um, in most cases, they are talking to a room full of members of the same club. And they say, hey, we all believe this, right? And everybody says, yeah. yeah. But then when that conversation leaves the room and it and it uh, is applied to a you know non-hunting public, it, it 
ceases to become productive and it and often becomes a conflict. And so that was half of my frustration. And the other half of my frustration was when I would come back from places in Africa or Russia or, or Pakistan or wherever on hunts and my friends and family who don't have an insight into hunting's role in conservation, they would get often emotional or upset at me for things that they've read online that aren't true about you know, animals being threatened that aren't or just the way hunting actually works or having this perception of what a trophy hunter is. And so those two things combined uh, for the last 10 or 12 years, I've really wanted to find a way to improve both of those situations, uh, find a way to help hunters communicate to a non-hunting public in a way that's less aggressive and less uh, exclusive. And then vice versa a non find ways to educate the public about um, you know hunting's role in conservation that that there are people who conduct themselves in a much more ethical and honorable way than than what you might see in sensationalized news headlines or, or facebook posts and all that kind of stuff and so we sort of came to the conclusion that we needed to produce a, a, a magazine and that led to volume one of modern huntsman um and so you know it's a, it's a 204 page book with no ads and you know brad and i kind of handpicked all the people we wanted to have involved. And from the very beginning, it became clear that our number one recruit would be Mr. Charles Post, who <laughs> is who I believe to be a unicorn in the hunting world. Um, and so <laughs> him and I are now working together uh, to move into volume two of Modern Huntsman to try to achieve these goals. But I'll, I'll use that. I'll let Charles give you a little bit of his background. Oh, too kind, Tyler. Um, yeah, so I guess to fill the shoes of the unicorn that I've been offered. <laughs> um, my, yeah, my background's a bit interesting in that I, I did grow up hunting. You know, my, my father was a hunter. Uh, he was also kind of a lifelong conservationist. He was on the board of California trout. Uh, my grandfather was a Harvard trained forester who also hunted wolves, uh, in Minnesota back when there's a bounty on them. So I grew up staying at their place in Virginia and, uh, the wolf skins were, were the blankets we had in the, in, uh, the rooms we stayed in. So it's kind of this weird thing where I grew up in California and Marin County, which is a incredibly, uh, liberal part of the state, um, ended up uh, pursuing an undergraduate and a graduate degree at UC Berkeley, studying ecology there. Uh, you know, Berkeley's for better or for worse, probably one of the most liberal institutions on earth. Um, but it gave me this really interesting dual perspective of, of hunting, of stewardship, conservation, and also, you know, a really close connection to, you know, a, a largely non-hunting world. Uh, you know, there, there definitely are hunters uh, in central and northern California, but I think the overwhelming population of the Bay Area is, is, is frankly pretty disconnected from the hunting community and the hunting world. So I kind of straddled this line of, you know, one foot in each, in each camp. Um, you know, I understand the far right and I understand the far left and I've spent a lot of time, um, you know, kind of rubbing shoulders with, with friends and family and peers who identify in both places. But, you know, when Tyler and Brad, you know, kind of, uh, sprouted this modern Huntsman idea, it, it was something that, that felt right. It was something that, you know, I think, couldn't have come at a better time because for me, you know, what my life's work and my passion, you know, really kind of orbits this idea of stewardship and this reality that now more than ever, we need to get people outside and we need to build bridges as opposed to uh, illuminating these, these 
points of conflict or these perceived points of conflict. And, you know, while I really appreciate, uh, you know, Brad's comment about, or Tyler's comment about people talking about hunting, being in these kind of island situations where everybody echoes, you know, kind of the same perspective. And then you, you leave and enter the public realm and people don't really understand the lexicon or don't understand the pursuit or, or the passion. You know, I think one of the things that's interesting here is that not only do we need to change that narrative, but also realize that, that if we can focus on hunting as a group of people that does have a best and could be better end of the spectrum, we should be focusing on those best case examples of stewardship of people who are hunting for the right reasons. Cause just like there are vegans who take it too far, there are vegans who do a mindful job. And I think hunting's not perfect. And I think one of the things that excites me about Modern Huntsman this opportunity is that we can profile and celebrate and uplift those best stories that that show that hunting is not killing, it's hunting. And hunting, you know, you could be a deer hunter and never harvest deer. And by virtue of being a hunter, you care about nature. And, and now more than ever, we need people to care about these natural spaces. Um, so it's, yeah, I think it's a very uh, timely effort and it's, it's an exciting one. I think issue one really set the stage um, for us to really dive into issue two and uh, I couldn't be more proud to be a part of uh, what lies ahead. Yeah, uh, it's it's exciting, I think, for me from the outside looking in too, because a lot of your guys' concerns and some of the different things that led you to to create this have been things that have been on my mind a lot too and it's something I think about a lot and talk about a lot that being you know how do we as a hunting community better represent ourselves how do we better engage the non-hunting public you know welcome those who are interested in joining us and for those who aren't interested but are kind of on the fence at least present a positive representation of what we're doing and don't give people really easy stupid reasons to think those stereotypes are true. Um, but to your point earlier, uh, Tyler, that being that lots of times us in the hunting community, especially those of us who, who grew up doing this, who don't know anything else, um, again, we're in this echo chamber where we just talk to each other and we don't ever or don't often think about what things look like from the outside. But we're still posting things on Facebook or Instagram or on TV shows that sometimes the rest of the world sees. Many times us not realizing what they're seeing and them not realizing what we're seeing because there's not that shared context. Um, so my question for you, maybe first, Brad, given you know how you led this off, the fact that you were a non-hunter, but you were turned off by this perception of what a hunter was or what the stereotype of, of a hunter was. I'm curious from, from your guys' perspective, what are those things that turned you off? What are the, the things you saw or the, the things you heard or what actually flesh out what that negative connotation was that turned you off to hunting? Because I think it's, it's helpful for those in the hunting community who maybe don't think about this to hear from someone like you to understand, you know, Oh wow. Maybe I was saying things in this way. I never thought that someone would be, you know, seeing that in a different way than I did. Um, so, so that's my long and rambling way of saying, can you share some examples? (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, and I want to answer this, question softly and be very cautious about how I approach this because it's not an objective um, person or a stance. It's it's more of um, how it's perceived because what I've come to learn, you know, from my background in non-hunting and not having a lot of interaction with hunters is that the way that I perceived this person, I'll kind of get into that in just a second, this, this person 
um, when I talk to them, they're different, right? The way that they interact with me and they talk about wildlife and they talk about the experience that they had hunting or, or what it is for them. And oftentimes it is something they grew up with, right? That they went out with their dad and their granddad or maybe their mom and their grandmother. And they, this is a way of life. It's not, it's just the way that I thought about literally is the way that they thought about hunting. And I had to kind of, you know, digest that and, and realize that this is, this is a way of life for so many people me, my friends and family, it's not just people on the outside. But the, the stereotype that I had in my mind was more so something that I'd seen on social media, and I think everybody can kind of relate to it. And it's just that kind of blood aggressive photo of, you know, the misinterpretation, the misunderstanding of what a trophy hunt might look like. And it's it's the aggressive, um, you know, way of the, um, you know, holding up the, the, the bloody head of a whitetail and, and it's it's got his tongue hanging out. And it's just uh, a poor representation. And it's only one snapshot of what the full experience was. And that's something that you know, with my background in, in kind of the creative industry and um, and really understanding, like, how do we tell stories that are going to connect and convey a much more honest and beautiful depiction of whatever it is that we're talking about? People get one moment to try and identify and understand with a, with a culture. And if it's a culture that they're unfamiliar with, and especially one like this, where it's got so much political intensity and it's got so, so many people that are against it. We get one chance often to show a representation of what we believe. And if that one representation is is the twisted neck of a bloody whitetail, it's not the story. And I know that this is something that is not going to be solved overnight, right? We're not going to be able to release one issue of a, of a publication that is going to inspire and invigorate uh, a new type of sharing uh, either stories or content on social media. But what I hope to do, what we have all collectively worked so hard to create is is a way to kind of spearhead and, and lead a, a generation of people into um, conveying and representing hunting in a way that is both honorable and respectful towards the wildlife and the land and also inspiring and aspirational towards those who may have never even given hunting a second thought. And I'm going to, I'm going to, well, go ahead. Did you have a question? No, I was going to toss it to you, Charles or Tyler. So I'd love to hear what you have to add. Yeah, this is Tyler. I'm going to jump in here. So yeah, I think that, um, you know, my answer is kind of twofold to, to piggyback on what Brad said. I think that for me, you know, being deeply embedded in the traditional hunting industry, you know, there were times where I'd be out on hunts and you don't always agree with people, right? You may, your, uh, you know, there's in, in the same way that we could all agree on virtues, right? Or honesty, courage, bravery, loyalty. Those are all things that we can agree are good on a moral scale. Well, I would like to think that there are also similar virtues in hunting that we're trying to represent through uh, modern huntsmen and, and, and the stories we tell and the people we involve but not everybody adheres to those. And unfortunately, the the conversation, as Charles said, about, you know, this traditional fight of the right versus the left. Well, if you're not fully with us, you're against us. And if you don't sign up for the, you know, super right wing, then you're a liberal communist hippie. And I found myself in situations where I didn't agree with someone because I felt like they were using buzzwords like conservation when they really weren't, in fact, a conservation minded person. They just wanted to kill something. 
And unfortunately, the way that the fight and the conflict and that conversation has become, you're either one camp, you're in one camp or the other. And so we felt that there was kind of a, a large population of people who live quiet lives, um, who, who live in an ethical, you know, hunting standard or, or are dedicated conservationists or really just hunt for their own meat because it's part of their budget, you know, it be, and it's just part of their, you know, their lifestyle passed down through generations that we felt that group of people wasn't being really represented at all and definitely not fairly represented. And so, you know, Brad sort of pulled upon that by accident with the Instagram channel. And it has been a booming echo that it is indeed much needed, that there are a lot of people who don't agree with magazines, say, or the big brands who are more focused on selling product than they are about the actual preservation of, of a hunting tradition. And so we're trying to focus on that stuff. Um, and, and, you know, with, with non-hunters, I'm trying to really listen to what they have to say. And as you mentioned, you know, what do they think about what we post? And I think that that's one of the main points I'm trying to make about hunters is we have to be very wary of the power of images and how quickly information can spread for good or online and what that can do to either improve the perception of hunting or do further damage. Because a lot of damage has been done and there's a lot of images out there that can't be removed. And so we're trying to show that there's a different way and that there's a different demographic of people that represent what we feel are the main virtues of what hunting is supposed to be. And through that, the tone we've taken and the, the, the sensitivity that we're showing towards people who are not hunters has worked. And there are a lot of people who've ordered this magazine who were either vegans or non-hunters. And I just talked with a young lady the other day from California who literally told me, I read your magazine and was so inspired that I signed up for a hunting camp in Washington. And she went up and learned how to hunt and shot her first turkey and harvested it. And she said it's the most amazing experience of her life. And she may not be a hardcore hunter, but what we did directly caused her to become interested. I think that the, the the conclusion there is that when when people who aren't hunters realize that they can be quote a hunter or they can provide some food for themselves maybe a couple times a year a deer or a turkey or a wild hog and they don't have to sign up for the rest they don't have to sign up for the gear and the camo and the hunting conventions and all that that they can live their life in a, in a way that feels you know rewarding and is more connected with the land and that's something that they can do on their own terms and that we can help them find access to opportunities information it's been it's been the the uh, the reaction has been really positive so let me let me present a uh, a different perspective <clears throat> playing devil's advocate here because i i agree with everything you guys are saying and what i'm going to present to you i fundamentally disagree with but this is something that even when i talk about this kind of stuff sometimes you'll hear this response you'll say why do I need to care about what these other people think? Or why should we want more non-hunters to get into hunting? There's not enough spots to hunt as it is. I don't need more competition. Or why should I cater to some yuppie over in this place who doesn't get me at all? Blah, 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 blah. You'll hear that kind of response from people. Why? What would your response to that, um, to that be? So... I'm going to give a real quick response and then I want Charles to jump in. Um, my surface level response to that would be because we now live in an age where there are legislation, legislative opportunities, votes that come up about access to public lands that the general public or people who might be against hunting have a say in. And if we continue to combat those people and treat them as people whose opinion don't matter, that's going to come back to bite us in the ass and we could potentially lose access or hunting rights as a result. 
and I'm going to, I'm going to throw the ball to Charles there. Yeah, you bring up a great point, Tyler. And, and Mark, that's a, a really an interesting question. I think what comes to mind for me and, and to kind of add to a little bit of what Tyler started off uh, introducing is that most of the public land in America is not Instagram famous, you know, is not showing up in, in a Chris Burkhardt feed or in a Nat Geo feed. The places that people harvest you know, some of the best mule deer in Nevada or Utah or some of the best elk units in Montana. These aren't places that people are going to hike and camp and take, you know, photos by the lake. So those are just public land. Those are just pieces of public land. And like, like Tyler said, that public land belongs to all the hunters, but also everybody else and people in Portland and people in Salt Lake city and people in Boise who maybe have never hunted or, or could really care less about it, they have a say. And like we've talked about, if, if the currency for the hunting kind of community and culture, uh, you know, and maybe this is a, a generalization in some senses, is, is the grip and grin photo that we all know deters non-hunters and, like Brad pointed out, really shines a light on one kind of unfortunate moment in the whole experience, right? Like you wake up at sunrise, you go have your hunt. Most times you don't even kill anything, but there's all the moments that make these adventures epic and make these days spent outside transformative, right? And it's, it's the sunrise, it's the time spent with friends and family, it's the experience, it's the pursuit, you know, it's all of these things, innumerable, you know, qualities that, that are attached to, to hunting that we all love and, and, and seek out. But it's that one, like Brad said, it's that one image, which the hunting industry has propagated, has, has, has confirmed that photo is worth something to us because we post it, we publish it, we celebrate it. It's the thumbnail on the video. It's the cover of the magazine. And that doesn't do hunters any good because there are more non-hunters than hunters. And if you just think about the pie and your little slice of the hunting community, the rest of that pie has a voice that's equal to yours in terms of public land. So if your goal as a hunter is to have your grandkids be able to hunt these units and places that you grew up hunting, then it's in your best interest and your kids' best interest to play ball and to understand that, that what we're after is the opportunity to hunt. What we're after are healthy ecosystems that support and produce healthy populations of animals. So you can go get, that elk to fill your freezer buck to put on your wall or whatever it is that you're after. But it's a shared resource that by virtue of being an American belongs to everybody. So it's just this reality that there needs to be an intention to appreciate the fact that we all have an equal stake in this, that public land needs advocates now more than ever because of politics, because of big business, because of, uh, development and, and resourcing all these threats to public land. So we need allies. You know, we're not doing ourselves any favors by, by isolating ourselves and all going onto the same Island. And I think, you know, with that, I, I draw a parallel to the outdoor industry, which is a place that I've spent a lot of you know time in my career and, and, you know, being an outdoor recreator, um, you know, I identify with and, and same with, same with, you know, folks in, on, on that side of the aisle, their currency is climbing the big wall, is summiting the mountain, is how fast did you do the PCT, how light was your pack? It's not stewardship. 
those places that they're experiencing, whether it's, you know, Denali National Park or the North Cascades, I mean, these places were set aside because of their ecological integrity as places uh, with, with timber, with clean water, with wildlife. They weren't set aside for Instagram. They weren't set aside for, for overnight backpacking trips. But the outdoor industry has propagated this currency of athletic feet over anything. And just like the hunting industry should, should realize that, that it's not just the grip-and-grin photo and that groups like Modern Huntsman and publications like ours are aiming to move the needle back towards a place of reverence, back towards a place of, of, of dialogue, you know, the outdoor industry is, is equally, in, in my opinion, in need of rebranding because what, what, what they're celebrating, the currency that's in that industry is not propagating stewardship by and large. So I, I think it's not just a hunting, uh, you know, problem. I think the overarching theme, and we're just addressing it through this one channel, is to tell everybody, you know, hey, these places and these ecosystems need management they need stewards they need attention being paid to the whole system not just you know the epic you know uh, granite wall or or the big buck that you know that we have at our knees um so i think it's kind of a it's a it's a nod to this 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 deeper you know this closer look at at, at stewardship in general yeah it's an interesting it's an interesting position to be in from from the inside, and I think a lot of this comes down to I think number one, like you guys all address this, like a couple realities of the situation. If if you want to continue hunting in the future, right, we don't really control our own fate, and that other people will, the larger majority of people don't hunt, and we need to either present ourselves in a way that they'll accept and not vote against our right and privilege to do what we're doing right now. Or if we don't do that, just pragmatically, if we don't do some of the things you're saying, we might lose that privilege. Um, but, but I think a lot of this comes down to storytelling because as you were talking about earlier with the grip and grin picture, yeah, I mean, that is, that is, and especially for someone who's just in this, like who hunts all the time and this is their life, this is what they love to do. A lot of my friends even myself at one point never even thought a second about a grip and grin. Like you were so excited to share, you know, show your buddy this picture. And then once Facebook and Instagram came around, then you want to share it there because you know, there's so much that went into that photo. Of course, that doesn't always conveyed through a photo, but you know that there was all those early mornings and all that work all spring and summer and preparing and and hours and hours and hours in the woods and so much emotion and and angst and excitement and nervousness and it all came down to this one thing and in that one moment it all worked out and now here you are and you have this huge smile on your face and you've never been happier because of all these things that led up to this great moment but that many times isn't communicated through that picture Um, so the question is though how do you still how do we still share our excitement and, and celebrate these special moments in our lives, but do it in a way that doesn't negatively impact the bigger the bigger community? And so I think to, to all your points already, it's it's how do we communicate better? How do we present photography or video or whatever in a respectful manner? And then I think also 
providing context. You know, a simple thing that I've just started doing now is that whenever I do share an image that has, you know, an animal that I've hunted and killed, try to provide some context or explain what went into it or why this matters or why this was a powerful moment or, or what happened with that animal and that meal. And lots of times just a little bit of explanation for a non-hunter when they see this and if it's presented in a respectful way, that is enough to help them connect the dots and not have that kind of drastic gut just feeling of, of a pall. Um, but this is where I'm heading with this. When it comes to some of the context or some of the reasoning behind hunting or, or a little bit maybe of, of how we like to, um, I think the party line lots of times within the hunting community when someone says, well, why do you hunt? Or you shouldn't be able to hunt. That's a horrible thing. Why would you do that? Many times one of the party lines, one of like the speaking points is, well, hunting's conservation. You know, by going out there and hunting these animals or whatever, we're paying for all the conservation work, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and Charles, I actually heard you address this issue on another podcast in the past, and I think you had some some helpful perspective on this. So I'd, I'd be curious if you can speak to this a little bit too, because this is something I felt a lot as well. I wonder and I worry if sometimes we as hunters lean too much on default conservation by saying that, well, we bought our license, so we're contributing to con- conservation, or we bought a rifle and we got taxed on that, so we're conservationists. Um, is that enough? I, I don't think it is, but what are your thoughts, Charles? And what do you think about what the right next step could be? How do we better live up to the conservationist mantle if we want to use that as a, as a rationale for why we should be able to hunt or, or why we have worth and value? Yeah, no, it's a great point. And it's, it's one that, that uh, Ben O'Brien, who has the Hunting Collective podcast that I talked about a few weeks ago or months ago now. But, you know, it's saying that because you hunt, you're a conservationist. The saying that is, is exactly the same as saying because you pay taxes, you're pro-infrastructure and pro-bridge improvement and pro-median management. I mean, it's, it's, it's an involuntary tax that hunters pay when they buy their license or buy ammunition, um, you know, whatever it might be, you put some money into the pot. It's not a voluntary, you know, something that you seek out as an individual with a, with a conscious mindset to say, Hey, I'm going to pay extra to do this. Um, you know, it's, it's a tax, like I said, just like road improvement, um, or whatever, or, you know, you know, your municipal tax, um, so I think that's kind of a, you know, um, misleading. I think it's kind of just, yeah, a low hanging fruit that, that everybody likes to pluck. I mean, that's the same thing as saying, because you're vegan, you have no impact on the earth. Um, but I would argue there's not, ne- there's never been more white tailed deer in, in America. That's a fact than there are today. And if you eat avocados, a lot of them are grown in Northern Mexico where monarch butterflies overwinter. So I would argue that eating white-tailed deer in most of the United States is a much better thing to do for the environment than eating avocados. But that's another <laughs> conversation. It's a T-shirt. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I think, one, to be a conservationist, like Tyler said, it, it's a life's work. It's, it's, a, it's a pillar that identifies you on a cellular level and also guides the way that you, that you carve your signature on their land, whatever it might be. You know, that could be carpooling to go hunt that could be biking to go hunt that could be you know whatever packing your own making your own ammunition or or buying a used gun there's all these things that 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 add to your net impact on earth right like the the worst thing we ever did to this planet was be born right so population is a huge problem so we just need to mitigate the best we can 
our net impacts. And I think being a conservationist, there are some, you know, some pretty uh, conspicuous ways to, to be a hunting conservationist. And maybe that's getting involved with your local um, wild sheep foundation chapter and helping with some, um, some surveys or helping with trail, you know, maintenance or, just being a, a mindful, you know, stewardship guided landowner. And, and maybe that's, you know, that can take place in a number of ways. Maybe that's, um, you know, managing your forest, doing controlled burns. If you have a, if you have a farm, there's all of these things that I think are just, you know, elements that collectively make you a conservationist. I personally don't think that because you buy a, um, you know, you buy a license that makes you a conservationist. I mean, if you go watch a bird, are you an ecologist? Or if you go catch a fish, are you a fish biologist? Uh, you know, I'd argue not. Um, so yeah. And, and in terms of the storytelling aspect, you know, I was working on it on a shoot down in South Texas a few years ago um, with a good friend, Ben Masters, who's a, you know, who's a great hunter and, and, and certainly a conservationist in my mind. And, and we were working with this, with this outfitting group um, who did an amazing job of curating those photos you know, they had clients coming out and, and hunting whitetail, uh, you know, down in South Texas. And before anybody took any photo, they made sure that the animal was presentable, that there, the blood was cleaned. Literally, these guys carried a little spray bottle in their truck. And before anybody took a photo, they cleaned the animal up. If there was anything that was, you know, uh, you know kind of loud and in your face, they, they, they mitigated it, whether it was putting leaves over the wound or even dirt. And just making sure the tongue wasn't hanging out. They even put little a little piece of glass over the eye. I mean, they took it to like such an extreme level. You know, probably more than most would be able to. But it just showed me like you wouldn't have expected that if you brought somebody from, you know, from a suburban Portland down there, they would have been shocked and pleasantly surprised because what these hunting guides and this outfitting operation knew and realized is that the second, in today's age, the second you publish something on your personal account, you're just like a brand. You're just like a magazine. You're putting content out into the world that is, is by, by nature, by default of being published. It's open for, you know, for commentary. It's open for analysis and, and critique. And like you brought up, Mark, you know, in the past, it was this, thing where you could take a take a photo you know maybe you had you know a, a, a film camera or or whatever or you just take it on your phone and it wasn't necessarily going to end up in in the you know out in the world um, representing your community and your culture um, so you know it's one thing if you take a picture keep it on your phone don't publish it you know do whatever you want but I think the second you put it out there people need to remember that you're speaking on behalf of your community you know whether it's, uh, you know, you hunting in your backyard or hunting public land, like you're, you're portraying hunting and by default, it's up for, you know, people to, to take a poke at if, if, if they feel it's fitting. Um, so I think, yeah, the main things that I would say is, you know, take, take that picture. If, if that, if that picture of the animal and of that moment where you're fit, you know, your smile so big, it hurts, you know, and it's this really like this culmination of so many days and moments and things coming together, do that. But like you were saying, Mark, you know, there's, there's room for context. That's, you can write something about it. There's, 
there's room to, you know, pay reverence to the animal. You know, it doesn't have to be the biggest buck. It could be just an animal that goes in your freezer. And for a lot of people, that's a big deal. Um, so I think just realizing that the second it goes out there, you have this, this opportunity to tell a story as opposed to just putting something out there that's a blank canvas for people to write whatever they want. Yeah. And I think to, to what your point was there, I think lots of times what we need to realize is that what we put out into the world that then many times people, if that's their one you know opportunity to see this image or to see something related to hunting, or this is their one contact point, all of a sudden that one thing might represent their entire opinion um, or perspective on what hunting is or who hunters are. And that's something that I think, um, I think ties into the next tangent I kind of want to take us down, which is how recently in particular with some media frenzies, things that have happened with hunting in Africa have impacted hunting in North America. So something that shows up on CNN that happened on a different continent all of a sudden is causing a huge frenzy here in America and causing people to ask why we're doing something here in Michigan or something, how that might relate to something they saw on TV elsewhere. And I know, Tyler, you've got a lot of experience in this, obviously spending time in Africa. Um, So I'm curious on two things. I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are on how what's happening in Africa may or may not impact America. And then secondly, the CNN documentary trophy. I don't know if you guys saw this, but I I watched this film and I, when I, while I was watching that, I was thinking about what I just said. I was thinking, wow, how will someone watching this then translate that back to our context here in North America? If you saw that film, can you speak to what your thoughts on that was and how some of the representations of hunting there um, could impact what's going on. And, and then, I mean, the Cecil debacle, all the different things going on over there. Um, <laughs> sure. What are your thoughts on all that? So, no pressure, Tyler. <laughs> yeah. Well, t- <laughs> thankfully, I've answered these questions in my head and in my personal life many times. Um, so my first job, I, I went to USC. I went to University of Southern California to study photography and film. And my first job out of college was in Tanzania. I moved straight to the bush and filmed hunting safaris for five months. And it was a, you know, a a completely transformative experience. And when I came home, the kind of flack that I got, even from friends and family in Texas of all states, about what I was doing really showed me uh, how much of a disconnect there was between what people view hunting in Africa to be and what the actual situation is. And so my main story in Modern Huntsman, the first issue, was called Africa Overture. And it's literally my effort to kind of communicate a lot of the topics of conversation I've had to have over the years about how it actually works in Africa. And it's different for every country. And, you know, but for the most part, the, you know, as Charles says, the the best examples are what I focused on with that. And I try to talk about the in-between, right? There's supposed to be, you know, there's government mandated game reserves that are leased to safari companies and it's there in their best interest to effectively manage those areas with conservation efforts. And the government is there, they do censuses, um, and based on those censuses, they issue a certain number of permits for whatever species that's supposed to adhere to a specific, you know, wildlife management percentage. Well, there's a gradient there of how successful or, you know, accurate those surveys are. There's a, you know, a gradient of people's ethics of, 
should they shoot that full quota or is that the government saying, well, we just want more money. So we're going to say there's more animals here than there actually are. So, but the, 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 the point is that there are some incredible conservation efforts over there. And some of the most successful conservation in Africa, most of, in fact, is done by hunting operations. And, um, you know, I actually worked for the gentleman who bought the black rhino tag a couple of years ago at the Dallas Safari Club. And the, the Namibian government issues uh, a, a rhino tag up for sale every year because there's usually some aggressive bull or sterile bull that's killed other young males. And they auctioned this thing off at the Dallas Safari Club. And they literally had a million dollars that they were going to pay for this tag, which was going to go 100% into the rhino conservation, uh, rhino cons- conservancy there in, in Namibia. And the animal rights groups got wind of it. And they sent in death threats enough to where the FBI had to show up and said that anyone who bids on this rhino hunt, we're going to kill. And so everyone got scared off except for Corey Knowlton, who they eventually did a CNN documentary on. And so when the bidding opened, he bid $350,000 and no one else bid because they were scared that they were going to get their lives ruined by animal rights you know, protagonists or antagonists. And so rather than the bid going the way it it was supposed to and a million dollars go to rhino conservation, those animal rights groups literally blocked three quarters of a million dollars from going to rhino conservation. And that's just purely out of ignorance and lack of understanding of the way the situation is. And, you know, the whole Cecil situation, that's, that's a, a complicated issue. Uh, To be fair, that guy was uh, sold a lion license that was, not on license so it was a little bit of an ethics issue with the game scout and in uh, in that country um there's some lessons there i mean i think that anyone in their right mind who was going on a lion hunt who saw a radio collared lion might think twice about if that's a good idea from a publicity standpoint to do something like that and hunting in itself is a very controversial issue um that you know has a, like i said a spectrum of of you know is this a good or bad thing and it just depends on the area but the point is that people in the west have developed a very strong emotional attachment to animals that in most cases they've never seen and often the public opinion of these topics is swayed by whoever yells the loudest and in most cases animal rights and anti-hunting groups are the ones that yell the loudest or have the most money or unfortunately take some of these bloody trophy photos that we all put online and turn those into memes that then they then put millions of dollars behind to market and spread across the internet. So the opinion has been swayed in a lot of cases by misinformation. And so at the very least, we are trying to showcase the, the the facts and the realities and the goods and the bads in between. And you know we wanna focus on the good, but you see the good in context of of the bad and that there are people who aren't out to, to conserve. They're out to make money. And, you know, in, in a real in reality, as you applying to the United States, because of the backlash that the administration received, because of the backlash the administration received about, you know, some of these Africa hunts, it has created a ban. Uh, in the United States of importation of elephant and lion um, trophies, harvest, just skins or tusks or anything like that. And so the result of that is that the, the African governments have now are, are now currently losing hundreds of millions of dollars every year that would be directly, uh, you know, applied to conservation. And so a lot of these hunting operations in remote areas have shut down and they've had to give their areas back to the government, which basically means there are now massive game reserves, tens of millions of acres that are no longer being effectively 
anti you know anti poaching patrols are not in they're not being managed anymore and so poachers are moving in you know ivory poachers meat poachers tree poachers which is an often overlooked problem in Africa is habitat loss so people who cut down trees or move their cattle into move their cattle into areas that they're not supposed to graze in the habitat that these animals, you know, African wildlife need to survive. And with population expansion, habitat destruction, and the increasing conflict of all three of them is created a major problem. And unfortunately, as legislation goes in the United States, so conservation goes in Africa. So it's been a very bad thing. And then beyond that, just the word hunter, right, is being painted as a negative thing, which is part of the reason we chose the term huntsman instead of hunter because we wanted to get away from the current connotation of the word hunter and that's not meant to be a gender exclusion for people who might wonder that uh, it's more of a poetic word that uh, has a gender in the same way that Spanish and Italian words have gender so it's meant to be sort of um, a little more of a, a poetic representation of, of what the tradition is supposed to be um, and we're hoping that by that we can start to show people that okay what you see on the news is not what we're talking about we're talking about something different and also what you see on the news isn't quite accurate. This is the deal. And we're trying to be presenter, presenters of those facts and perspectives so that hopefully people start to you know, use a little bit more logic and, and rationale. Yeah, I think I think the Africa example, what happened there around a few of these incidents and how that translated to the media frenzy in America and then law changes. I think that is a great example. And then I think also what recently happened in British Columbia with the banning of grizzly bear hunting. Both of these things were kind of public opinion um, votes or, or just catering to an uproar of opinion around something that sometimes isn't fully understood or there's misinformation around there or one bad apple painted the whole thing. Um, but I think they are examples that we should look to as to why this whole idea of representing ourselves positively matters. I, I know probably some people listening and I've talked about this so much they might think that I'm just like up here on stage preaching all the time about this and it might maybe gets tiring and I apologize if that's the case, but I think that we are just seeing now real life impacts that are coming to fruition when we're not careful about how the public perceives what we're doing. Because if we represent things in the wrong way, now things are happening. Privileges and rights are being taken away laws are being changed. And, um, you know, that that's just, just something that while it's not convenient, sometimes it's a pain in the butt to have to think about all these different things. It simply is the reality that we live in. And I think being mindful in these ways um, is probably our best step moving forward if we want to continue to be able to live this lifestyle. Now to what you just mentioned, Tyler, this idea of, of the modern huntsman or modern hunter or however people want to take this, what is, is your guys' vision of what that person is? What's your vision of the future hunter, of the, of the modern future hunter? What does this person and this lifestyle look like going forward if we want to keep this thing going forward? Sure. I think that this is something that I definitely want Charles to weigh in, in on as well because, you know, in the, in the same way that, you know, when we've been talking to brands or sponsors and, and you know, partners for uh, ongoing issues or, or web stories, people say, what's your demographic, right? <laughs> and the answer to that question is not a very succinct, pinpointed, okay, this is the exact type of person we're looking for. This is the exact type of person we're trying to represent. We're more so representing a mindset and a value system and an approach to what we 
is the best case of ethical hunting and conservation and stewardship. And so whether that's a 10 year old, you know, kid down in Alabama, or that's a 24 year old recent college graduate uh, from California, or that's a 65 year old uh, guy in, in Minnesota who feels like he's never and able to truly express what how he feels and he feels like his voice gets drowned out with the hunting industry. So I think that realistically it's more of someone who um, kind of anything that we've said up to this point, if it resonates with you, that's who we think you know we're, we're trying to reach here. And we're trying to become a resource and a gathering point for like-minded creatives, hunters, and, and, and conservationists to show that uh, and, and hopefully carve out a larger piece of the pie for people who think this way because we feel that they're not accurately being represented in you know mainstream publications and and things like that and and maybe through a trickle-down effect that the hunting industry or even the mainstream media will see what we're doing and say hey you know what that's that's honorable and that's virtuous and we think that that deserves um, for more people to know about it or more people should order the magazine or maybe I'll submit a story even if they're not a hunter and so you know moving forward we're going to be including stories from non-hunters non-hunting perspectives and of course the the lens there is that it needs to be constructive you know that that we're to as Charles said bridge build bridges and, and bridge the gaps and hopefully reduce conflict but I think that when it comes down to it we're hoping to sort of recruit people and maybe recruits not the right word to inspire or enable people who are conservation minded in the sense of you know trying to be act an active participant in the you know in the management the effective management of landscape or the preservation of our natural resources and protection of habitats and uh, and having a larger role in that um, and and just being respectful you know ethical hunters do you add anything Charles yeah I mean I think um, just to kind of backpedal here for a second the 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 topic of Africa and the topic of Cecil and uh, and, and trophy the film and how that might um, inspire influence some of the um, ways that hunting is perceived or public lands are managed here in the U.S. You know, one thing I'd add that I think kind of dovetails into the into your next question about the, the kind of modern huntsman, who that person is. You know, I always like to bring this up when we talk about Africa, and, and Tyler and I are constantly talking about Africa because it's not something I know a lot about. But what I do know is that Africa is complex, that each country in Africa has a different suite of rules, of regulations, of, of successes and failures, of political climates, of economic climates. There are all these things that are affecting the way wildlife and lands and ecosystems are managed, even down to the regional scale. Like each, you look at one country, there's going to be areas of success and areas of failure within that country. So I think the, the really unfortunate uh, kind of phenomena that seems to be quite pervasive in the world in America as well, is that we are spoon fed these gross overgeneralizations, many of which are negative, you know, like read the front page of whatever your local newspaper is. And most of the stories are negative. Most of them, um, you know, are picking something that, that triggers a response. You know, they want to feed you the, 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 seven word byline that makes your heart race or makes you want to cry or, or whatever or makes you scared. I mean, that's the currency of media. 
And for hunting, it's been destructive. You know, like these films are made to piss people off. These films are made to evoke a response, not generally to say, you know, the problem's a little bit, or the situation, the landscape's a little bit more complicated than we than we really understand. And this is the best that we understand about this one aspect of this broader narrative. And I think that is what we are also trying to point out is that these stories, hunting is complicated. Wolves exist in North America, but the reality of wolves is different in BC compared to Idaho. You know, like wolves, there are some wolves in California, but (laughs) their whole situation, the political climate associated with them, their ecological impact is very different than wolves in Yellowstone. And wolves in Yellowstone are incredibly different than wolves 20 miles outside of Yellowstone. So we're we society, the public is constantly reminded falsely that because we understand what happened to wolves in Yellowstone, we understand wolves in general. And that is really unfortunate because the world is complicated. Hunting is complex. There are hunters that are amazing people that we at modern huntsmen will elevate and lift up and celebrate and shine a light on. But there are also people who we won't because they have a lot of room, you know, to improve just like politicians, just like your local banker, just like a used car salesman, you know, like any sect of society has people who are stellar humans and people who, you know, have some room to improve. And, and we're all, you know, we all have faults and we all have places to improve. Nobody's perfect. But to say all hunters are good or all hunters are bad is misleading to say, all politicians are good or bad is misleading. And to say Africa is just one you know, homogenous place or hunting in North America is just one homogenous uh, kind of landscape is misleading. And I think that's something that we should continue to inject into these conversations because somebody will ask Tyler or me or whoever about hunting in Africa, and they probably think they have their head pretty well wrapped around the question, you know, trophy hunting is bad. Well, like Tyler said, there's examples where trophy hunting's actually pretty benign and good but there's also examples of trophy hunting that's probably pretty you know could could use some improvement or is maybe not as sensitive or is actually maybe not you know ecologically beneficial um and and that's the kind of minutiae that i think that we want to point out and and while pointing that out say like here are examples of this in a wonderful light that we can all draw inspiration from and that we hope the next generation of hunters embodies. And I think that, in my opinion, is the modern huntsman. It's somebody who realizes that if you want to harvest a big elk, there needs to be a healthy watershed with healthy soil and healthy, a healthy fire regime and a healthy invertebrate community. And these animals that we pursue are, are directly a reflection of healthy ecosystems. So if you're big on, you know, elk, for example, you, you know, your best friend should be the guy who's studying the Aspen in the riparian corridor. And we need to realize that all of these things are connected and that there's a lot of things we don't know. I mean, that's what I love about ecology and science is that science exists under the understanding that we don't know everything and that science is always improving. And that when we say something in the scientific world, we say it with an understanding that there is 
a, a great possibility that we're wrong or that we don't know everything. And I think with hunting and modern huntsmen, we want to point out these complexities and point out rooms for growth. And also, you know, we're not in the business of saying like every person is the best that there ever could be in the hunting world. Like we're here to celebrate the people that we should all look up to. Um, and I think that should go with, you know, any of the topics, whether, like I said, it's Africa or trophy hunting or whatever, there's, there's great examples and there's examples that aren't so great. Um, and there's always improvement to be made. Yeah. And I think, I think to add on to that, I'm sorry, Mark, I was just going to add on real quick. I think to add on to that too, this is kind of the beauty of storytelling, right? Is it's not a presentation of what's right versus what's wrong, or here's how to live better or the top 10 ways to improve your game or whatever. It's a presentation of something that goes far beyond what is fact, and it goes into the soul level of what you define truth to be. And so, you know, we our intention through everything we do, whether it be through media, whether it be through conversations, whether it be through, um, you know, being uh, being a part of of a topic of interest, is simply to present a narrative that may or may not have been heard before, may or may not have been presented before. And that in doing so, we give the listener or the viewer or the reader the ability to interpret that in their own frame of reference. Because at the end of the day, the, the thing that's most polarizing is somebody who believes that they are the supreme truth and they're presenting their supreme truth as fact. And we know that you know we can do without much of the polarizing uh, media outlets in America and go to, towards something that's less sensationalized and more, more normalized. And when you start to normalize a conversation, allow people to make their own decisions and to see facts and figures, but also see somebody's heart and soul behind it, it gives you the opportunity to actually feel something and be convicted by it as opposed to having to feel like, you know, you are on the outside if you don't participate in this or you're wrong if you don't, or you're right if you don't, but instead and give them a reason to feel and to believe in something. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up too. I think, I think that is so important to look at this, um, look at a lot of these issues we've been talking about and not in a polarizing kind of way, but in a, in a let's, let's have a dialogue kind of way. Let's be inclusive. Let's better understand each other. Let's look at the complexities and the nuance here. Um, and, and, to your earlier point, so much of what's going on in the larger world could um, maybe be improved a little bit if we just all got a little bit better at doing that. Um, but another thing I want to to make sure is known, and, and I might be speaking for you guys here a little bit, but I, I think it's important to note that, you know, even if you do enjoy, you know, the traditional hunting media and hunting TV shows and you like the hunting magazines and, you know, I, I watch and, and read and, and participate in a lot of that stuff myself too. There's nothing wrong with enjoying some of that stuff, but then also agreeing with some of the ideas that are being presented by you guys in Modern Huntsman. I don't think it's an either or. I think it's, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's, hey, here's some different things we can take from this aspect. Here's some things to think about on that side of things. I think, you know, we're all part of this community. I think what you guys are doing a really nice job of is though is, is shining a light on certain aspects of things and saying, hey, let's have a conversation around this. Is this the best way to present things? Is there Are there some different ways that we can talk about this? Um, and I think that is a powerful thing. And I, I would want to make sure that someone who, you know, 
I don't want anyone to be turned off by these ideas because they feel like they don't fit into this little narrow box. Um, even if you come from Southern Michigan and love watching your Whitetail Freaks DVD, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Yes. Um, you can also, you know, be interested and intrigued and curious about, you know, learning about some of these different ways of looking at hunting or different ways to talk about hunting. Or um, I think we, we share a lot of the, ca- the same common core beliefs and virtues. We appreciate many of the same things. Um, I think it just comes down to how we then communicate those things and, and sometimes just take a second to think about these things. And uh, what I like about what you guys are doing is the fact that you're giving, you're putting this, um, this platform out there that, that presents an opportunity to see some different ways of thinking through these things that I think is valuable. Um, so that's, that's a good thing, I think, for the, for the future of hunting. Because if we're all just talking the same language all, this, all the time and we're stuck in that echo chamber, we never have that room or that incentive to grow or evolve. And I think, um, as far as I see it, we're going to have to continue to evolve if we want to keep uh, wildlife and wild places and hunting a part of the future in this, this country, this world, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and I think to, to your point of, you know, I, I don't, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, in no way are we saying that, you know, other media or magazines are irrelevant. It's more of that we've felt that the people that aren't being represented in those shows or in those magazines that um, we're trying to give a voice. And in a lot of situations, um, you know, with the story, we're trying to focus it more on rather than the the end result, right, of, of the trophy or the buck or whatever, more about the individual experience along the way, which is what you mentioned in, in terms of context and, and the scenario and how much work went into that. Um, and, and where, you know, the, the mainstream, you know, the other magazines and those are hyper focused on on a specific demographic, right? People who are more interested in ballistics or, you know, aero performance or, um, you know, whitetail freaks or, or whatever that may be. And that's, that media is intended for those types of people who are very interested in that specific type of information. Our product is much more focused on uh, an outward facing message, right? We are trying to help bridge the gap between, you know, the, the two communities and, you know, not everyone's going to want to have difficult conversations. And, and, you know, there may be some people who hear what we're saying and they're like, Oh, that's cool. You know, good luck with that. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm not necessarily going to participate, but I respect what you're doing kind of thing. And that's, that's fine. You know, we're just trying to, you know, make, make access to the hunting world a a little easier for a non-hunter. And we're just trying to to do it in a different tone. That's a little more approachable. Um, that isn't so, uh, specific. I mean, for instance, the journal of mountain hunting, they produce an amazing magazine, but it's so specific because it's like very, very hardcore training, technical mountain hunting that I wish I could do, but I'm nowhere near the shape to be able to do something like that. And that's aspirational for me, but that may not be necessarily relevant for me reading. I may not understand it or I may not get it because that just doesn't necessarily suit my lifestyle at this moment. And, and so I think that, you know, it's important to, to make that distinction that there's, um, it's all part of the same mission here. We're all moving in the same direction. We're just trying to take a little, uh, a little different of, uh, a tone in ours. Yeah. So speaking of the fact that, that your your project here is it's a little more outward facing, it's a little bit more about helping present hunting to to new people in a way that's a little bit more approachable for many for many folks. So I'm curious then, given that um, lens that you guys have been looking at hunting through, and through probably a lot of the conversations you've had with people that have been curious about hunting maybe but haven't dove into it yet. 
I'm curious if you can give us, you know, back to traditional media, can you give us a how-to, a quick like a one, two, three of something that we hunters can be thinking about, maybe a couple different ways we can do a better job of connecting with new hunters or communicating about what we're doing to new hunters. Um, if we want to have some of these difficult conversations or if we want to bring someone into the fold, do you guys have a couple pieces of advice based on your experience that we could take? Yeah, I'll, I've got a quick one and then I'll let Charles chime in because I'm sure he's got different ones, which is great because we have a variety of perspectives. <laughs> um, you know, for me, I think that what's been really well received in context of, um, of non-hunters and even people like vegans who are against it for what they perceive to be moral reasons against a, a big beef industry or, or a poultry industry, and that's the context of food, right? Hunting for food or eating what you kill. And so I think that that's something that a lot of us who do that take for granted and, and how people uh, don't even consider that that's a possibility for them, that you can go out and harvest your own food. And so I think that that's something we're really trying to focus on because, um, you know, even, even, you know, shows, cooking shows or, or, you know, things like chef's table, people accept the context of hunting when it's viewed through the lens of cuisine. And so that's something that I, you know, I've made sure that I've communicated in some of my conversations, possibly in a, you know, difficult topics or things like that is, is that connection to food. Right. And I think that, um, you know, beyond that, it's a lot of times people get asked, why do you hunt? And that's a hard question to answer, but I think that that's an important question to ask yourself and whether or not you need to justify yourself to somebody, I, I don't necessarily know if you need to, but I think that it's important to, to look inward and, and really kind of ask ourselves why we do that. Why is it important? Is it an instinct? Well, is that the only reason we do it? Surely it's more than that. And so we're trying, we're attempting to be able to communicate a variety of those reasons why people hunt. And ideally we're focusing on the ones that we feel to be are, are, are a little more exemplary or, you know, adhering to virtues. To that, you know, words and and images are the things that stick with people most. You know, we, we know this to be intrinsically true. And I think that we've almost bastardized Instagram uh, in, in a sense of, uh, or we've, we've bastardized imagery because of Instagram and because of photo sharing technology that we've almost, uh, I, think, I think Charles put it so in such a good light um, and I want to frame it differently that you know Instagram every time you put something out on social media <clears throat> you're casting a vote for something not only <clears throat> not only are you um, presenting a, a topic that people can have commentary on but you're also casting a vote and because of the normalization of being able to just you know cast your vote through imagery and share that with the world and now you have a public opinion towards something and people have access to that it means a lot and i think that we discount it severely you know because it's it's our it's our channel it's our page we should be able to do whatever we want and that's true that's absolutely correct but you now have given access to people to be able to uh, content and also in conversation or um in in sharing you know, maybe an experience that you had hunting on social media through the written word or spoken word, it matters. You know, people are listening to that all the time. And so that's a huge point for me that that as coming from somebody who was formerly not in this space, felt excluded and, and 
uh, intimidated by this industry, one of my points of contention was I was afraid to say to people that I was a non-hunter. I was afraid to talk to hunters and say that I wasn't a hunter because I felt like I'd be pushed out of the club. And to be able to have a tone of voice that is more inviting, that speaks to, um, you know, this is not us versus you. This is not you can't come into our club. But instead, this is something that we want you to be a part of. I want to share this experience with you, whether it's I want to take you in the field or whether it's I want to show you some pictures of my last hunt. I'm so proud of, you know, X, Y, Z, whatever uh, animal I harvested or whether it's, um, you know, I want to show you how I prepared this this dish. That's something that we have the opportunity to not just share, but get people excited and feel included about. So I think that's one thing that ultimately, you know, in a mass media setting, all of us collectively are the voice of hunting. I don't think we need to take that lightly. Modern Huntsman is not going to change the industry. You know, Beretta and Filson and Sitka and Brands, and we are not going to change the industry. It's the people. Right? It's all of us, collectively. We're the ones who do this. And so if we can have a much more sensitive and thoughtful tone of voice and not change how we do things or the approach of, of the actual hunt, but how we communicate it, I think that's the ultimate key to being able to uh, convict and, and persuade that perception away from what the majority of non-hunters perceive it to be now into what the majority of hunters actually feel it to be. Yeah. Would you add anything, Charles? Yeah, I think, you know, two things that come to mind um, when I think about qualities of, of hunters and that, you know, that I think I and, and by, the, you know, through the collective lens, we think the next generation to benefit from. You know, I think about people like my friend Adam Foss, who's a celebrated bow hunter, uh, one of my best friends, uh, just a brilliant creative as well. But, you know, go go walk around the mountains with somebody like him. And you are brought into this world where he's reading the wind and looking at tracks and reading the, the, this markings on the trees. And just, he is painting, telling you this picture of an ecosystem through a hunter's eyes, somebody who's spent decades, you know, really studying the environment. And for everybody out there who's a hunter, you know, when you succeed and harvest something when it goes from hunting to harvesting that, that, that bridge, that portal that you go through that hinges upon your ability to read the woods, to be a woodsman or, you know, be a naturalist or to be, uh, be fluent in your backyard or the rhythms of the places you hunt. And that I think is something that's really exciting and something that's, that's often overlooked, you know, when you think about teaching your kid to hunt, or if you have kids, you take your kids hunting, you're telling them about all the things that might predispose them to a successful hunt. And those are the things that I'm sure you look in their eyes and you get so excited about seeing them loving the creek and the forest and, you know, uh, you know, making an owl call to stir up a turkey. You know, there's all these things that are part of hunting that I are really beautiful and amazing and inspiring and that makes you a good hunter, but also make you a steward and make you somebody who's an advocate and somebody who will, who will speak up for those places, those wild ecosystems that don't have a voice and need them now more than ever. So I think, 
you know, and, and that goes into food. You know, I'm looking at, uh, you know, a, amount of an animal I harvested a few years ago. And some of my favorite memories of that hunt have been the barbecues I've had like the other day. I had, we just, my fiance and I moved into a new place and we had friends over and we ate some of the elk that we harvested. And, and that barbecue was so fun being able to share food that you worked your butt off for through snowstorms and through, you know, all these crazy events and, and, you know, near opportunities. And then you get to sit down with your friends and family and share a meal. And with that meal comes all this reverence and comes all this positive energy and excitement. I mean, those are the things that get us fired up, right? Like the photo of the animal will always be something to remember, but there's all the experiences that radiate and orbit from that, that really make us addicted and passionate about what we're doing. And I think that's such a beautiful element that I know at Modern Huntsman, we want to celebrate. And like Tyler said, in terms of PR and storytelling, cuisine is a wonderful vehicle to do that. And it's also something that everybody has in common. Everybody's got to eat and everybody loves knowing a little bit about their food. And hunting gives us a great opportunity to talk about that. Yeah. Something you said a couple times there, Charles, brings me to another question that I that I often have been asking people. And it comes it kind of fits in very nicely with, with a lot of what we've been talking about, that being the importance of our words. And I'm curious, you mentioned a couple times that you harvested an animal. And I'm I'm really interested in people's perspective on this word using the word that they harvested an animal or they killed an animal. There's there's some people that say that when you say the word kill, you killed an animal, that's too aggressive, that's too harsh, that's going to turn people off, that's going to scare people away. Um, and so they say harvest. And then there's other people that say kill because, no, that's the truth of what's happening. That is the, the reality of what's happening here. I'm going to honor the truth and honor the animal by saying that. On the other hand, they feel that harvest then by saying harvest, it's like you are framing wildlife as a crop that you're just growing and taking, and that's disrespectful. So those are these two different perspectives on those two words that I often hear, and I don't know where I stand on it, but I'm really curious to hear different people's opinions on it. Um, I'm curious, Charles, is this something you've you've thought about and you actively choose to use the word harvest for one of these reasons or something else, or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think about it as like the same you know, analogous to you can be driving and you can be speeding, but to speed, you have to drive, right? So to kill, you can just kill something. It doesn't necessarily mean you're harvesting it, but harvesting implies that there's that second step. There's that something, there's that amendment to the initial function of killing or in the, in the analogy of driving, right? Like that's the first entry point. And, you know, you might be driving one day and run over a rabbit. You're not harvesting that rabbit. You just killed that rabbit. Harvesting is a driver and incentive to do what you're doing. And I think harvest also, I think, looks of reverence and appreciation and understanding for that process. When people talk about the second hunt, you know, you go bow hunting, you got to find the animal and then there's the tremendous amount of work that comes with packing it out, you know, especially if you're hunting up in the mountains, like that's, that's a huge part of the adventure. And, you know, thinking about harvesting food. I mean, I grew up with vegetable gardens for everybody out there. Who's ever tried to grow strawberries, like 
when you finally get your second year strawberry plants coming back in and you have 60 strawberries, each one means so much because you put all that effort into getting that little strawberry that the slugs didn't get and, you know, weren't picked off by a bird. And there's just that, that extra bit of energy attached to it. And I think harvesting embodies all those extra adjectives, those extra elements that come from, yes, the animal died, but it's being harvested because for, for me at least, you know, I'm pursuing these animals to eat and to share with friends and family. And I think there's a distinction there, right? Like some people kill things and some people harvest things. And I think harvest um, for me is, is the right word. Yeah, that's an that's an interesting perspective and 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 one I hadn't thought about in that way and and that it that harvest to you connotates not just the act of of the kill killing but it's also then the the intention behind it how you're going to use it to eat et cetera that that's an interesting perspective on it uh, Tyler or Brad would you guys uh, care to weigh in on that at all Yeah I think it's also a matter of context right you know, if, if we're all in a room full of hunters and you're not as worried about what people are thinking of what you're saying, you know, you could, in a casual conversation, you may say you killed it. But in, in you know, the, the venture we're in, which is trying to be diplomats of what we feel to be ethical hunting, we're trying to do what we can to make sure that we minimize, you know, conflict. And I think that you're right, the, the term killing, even though, yes, that's what it is. Um, is, is one of those things where people might take that the wrong way or, or it might, it might offend them. And, you know, then comes the age old question, do you need to worry about what other people think? And it goes back to what we discussed earlier that in certain cases, yeah. So, you know, do you need to watch what you say all the time? I I would advise it. It's not necessarily, you know, going to be a, a game changer. But I think that what Charles is referring to is more of a matter of respect. And if you're if you're saying it out of habit or you're saying it out of like, oh, well, I've done it so many times, so it doesn't really mean anything anymore, then that's one thing. But using a different word or uh, or if you say the word kill, you know, and there's a sense of remorse, that's a different thing. But I think if, if it's more just like going through the motions and like – you know, I, I killed four deer because I kill four every de- four deer every year, and and it's not really exciting to me anymore. Then I kind of that's where I would kind of see a problem in that. Um, you know, just desensitization. Um, and so yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I use it in different contexts, or you know, you could say reap. You know, so uh, either in ridge reaper. I mean, people use that term as well. So I don't know. I think it's more of just a matter the intention of you saying it and the audience you're you know saying it to and there's a certain luxury that most <clears throat> industries can afford you know camping or hiking biking a lot of the outdoors culture there doesn't have to be as much sensitivity because the stakes are lower right you don't you don't have the same effect um while you do have an effect on the the, the surroundings you don't have as much effect when you are camping hiking biking um when you are taking the life of an animal we we don't live in the same luxury of being able to be as loose with our words so you know to both tyler and charles point it's it's a matter of what is the terminology in the right context that's going to elude that there is 
a point of respect that you have when you're around with your buddies, like Tyler said. Absolutely, man. Use the lingo that makes the most sense, and that's going to bring you closer to your community um, because you all know and you all get it. But when people don't get it or there's some contention there, it's worth considering to be able to you know, watch what you say, understand who's listening, and ultimately that there is an impact that you're leaving behind with every word that you say. So whatever the word may be that you choose to say, I hope that it would be something that people understand what you're implying, not just what you're saying. Yeah. I think this comes down to, I think what all three of you mentioned kind of, uh, I think relates to maybe what the, the moral of this entire podcast is. The, 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 the moral of this story, I feel like is just being mindful, being thoughtful about what we're doing, how we're doing it, how we're communicating about it. Um, and the nuance there. And, um, I think you guys all have really interesting points and perspectives on that one example there, that word there to your point, Brad, it's a heavy word. It's a heavy idea. What we're doing here, the stakes here are not trivial in any, in any way. This isn't like shooting a basketball at the hoop. What we're doing is, is trying to take an animal's life, which is inherently as serious of a thing as, as there can be. Um, so I think the way we think about and talk about these things should mirror that seriousness. Um, absolutely. I've got two final quick questions for you guys. Uh, the, the second question I'll tell you is going to be that I'm interested in what is coming down the line for Modern Huntsman. So I am going to, uh, you guys can be thinking in the back of your mind about what we have to look forward to with the next issue, all that kind of stuff. But before that, what I'm curious about is I would love, you know, just based on hearing from you guys and hearing and seeing your work in previous places, I think I'm guessing you've got some some quality taste in media as far as books or films, anything like that. So, so I'm curious if you have any books or films or resources that you'd recommend to us to, whether it be related to hunting or the outdoors or conservation, anything within this realm that we've been talking about that you'd recommend. Um, and I don't know, uh, Charles, would you want to start with, with a couple of recommendations? Yeah, absolutely. Um, two books that that I, I really enjoy um, are The Great Animal Orchestra by Bernie Krause. And it's a book about the ecology of sound. And it's something that uh, I know a lot of hunters are already thinking about because sound, you know, out hunting. But it's this, it's this book that, for me, really changed the way I looked at ecosystems and looked at uh, just the natural world. And, and Bernie Krause, he's got a great TED Talk on it. Um, he's kind of this, uh, this ecology Jedi who's, who's got a lot figured out and he, uh, he tells the story in a pretty unique way. So that's one book. And then, you know, another book that's, that really is just like a timeless classic that was really, really, um, galvanized by my passion and, and interest in natural history and, and storytelling is a sand County. It's kind of one of the grandfathers of conservation, um, and those, those are two books that just, uh, yeah, that, that are really, really inspiring and, and well done. Um, you know, a, 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 in terms of films, I think one that selfishly I'll plug because I worked on it, but also because it was a film that, that really opened my eyes to complex narratives is a film called Island Earth. 
Uh, it's a film that was directed by Cyrus Sutton, uh, a great friend, one of the first people I worked for after grad school, you know, diving into the creative uh, world. Um, he's a, just a really talented, he's an Emmy Award winner, uh, pro surfer, uh, but also an amazing uh, reporter and kind of objective journalist. And Island Earth is a film you can find on iTunes, um, probably some other places, but I, I do know it's on iTunes. And it explores... GMOs and kind of the the landscape of genetically modified organisms, specifically uh, plants. Um, and it kind of takes place in Hawaii, where where a lot of the big chemical companies, you know, the Dow's and Monsanto's, do a lot of their their research. Um, and yet, I think it does a really good job of painting a fair brushstroke across a, a really complicated topic, kind of like hunting or, or politics or whatever. Um, so yeah, that would be kind of my shameless plug for Islanders, but it's it's a film that I think uh, will definitely open your eyes and kind of highlight those those complexities and the fact that there's not one easy answer to some of these bigger problems. Interesting. I have not seen that, but we'll have to check it out. And uh, to your Sand County Almanac recommendation, I I can't echo that enough. I, we've talked about it a lot on past episodes, so hopefully if you haven't yet, this is another um, reminder to check that one out. And it's funny you mentioned that. I just got a tweet yesterday from someone. Um, they tweeted at me and said that they went into Barnes Noble and went up to the counter after hearing us talk about it and had asked for, you know, asked if they had a San County Almanac and the lady or person, whoever it was, um, just got this really like huge smile on their face and like this quizzical look. And they're like, <laughs> that is the weirdest thing because literally just moments before she went and got the one lone copy of a San County Almanac from out back and put it on the shelf thinking how oh, no one's going to pick this up. And just seconds later, someone asked for it. So, uh, that was no kind of, way. Yeah. That's kind awesome. of a, kind of a strange, awesome. interesting circumstance. So, uh, it was, it was meant to be, um, that Eldo was going to find his way to someone else's mind. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Tyler, do you have any recommendations? I do. Um, so I unfortunately haven't been able to read as much the last few months with travel and us trying to get things going forward. But uh, I, uh, a couple months ago, I finished a Roosevelt trilogy. There, you know, it's a three-part book or three-book series massive uh, the thing the first one was called the rise of of uh, theodore roosevelt the second one was called theodore rex and the last one's colonel roosevelt but the second one in particular theodore rex was about his active presidency and it really goes into a little more detail about his views of conservation and how he came about them through touring around the united states and, and seeing areas of what used to be wilderness that were just being decimated and he really felt the need to try to make it stop and so it really kind of goes into that and and how he put that into action legislative wise. And then, you know, uh, after his presidency, some of the hunting safaris he went on. And it was really interesting to me to see that even back in, you know, 1914 or 1918, whatever it was, that the people's people were still giving crap about. And, I, you know, I, I had no idea. I just assumed that back then hunting was much more widely accepted. And while it may be on a larger scale, but there was still a general public consensus that questioned some of these, you know, bigger game quests. And uh, that was really interesting to me. And uh, it definitely gave a little bit more of a perspective into his conservation philosophy and, and how it sort of led us to where we're at today. Um, so I'd highly recommend that. Um, in terms of films, I don't have a specific film that I uh, have watched recently to, to of note. However, um, Charles and I and Brad are working together to make the Modern Huntsman site be a, a, a pretty 
hefty resource for conservation films and hunting films and, and films that uh, promote and, and discuss topics like Charles was talking about. And so here in the next few you know, months, we're going to be releasing a lot more of those on the site um, in, in an effort to kind of expand the conversation and, and be able to showcase more work of directors and cinematographers and, and people who are just doing great things in the film world. Because currently, you know, to watch a lot of these films, you got to go to 15 different YouTube channels, or you got to go to a film festival, or you got to follow the right person on Instagram. And, and so we want to try to be, um, you know, sort of a collection and a resource for, for all that type of work. So check back soon, and hopefully we'll have a lot more of those. And the film trailer that we just posted last week, uh, and I'll plug Charles here, was uh, his film that he uh, produced with Max Lowe and um, Forrest, Woodward. Forrest, yep, Forrest Woodward, uh, Sky Migrations. Um, we posted the trailer on our on our page, and it is absolutely fantastic. Um, I would highly recommend Thanks, everybody start. <laughs> yeah, it really is. We didn't plan that. We did not plan that. <laughs> but uh, no, there there are a number. I mean, a vast number of creatives in this space who are writers or photographers or filmmakers, um, or you know, like like Charles, who are you know by trade an ecologist, but by, you know, value a storyteller and can apply their learning into a way that people, both, you know, hunters, non-hunters, I mean, not to just get too general, but, but that folks can digest and interpret the work and the findings that they've come up with and really get inspired by it. Um, Charles is, is a, a ridiculous storyteller. <laughs> Great. Uh, I'll, I'll then you that six bucks for saying that, Brad. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, to, to to echo what you recommended a second ago, there, Tyler, to Theodore Roosevelt um, histories, you, you cannot go wrong with learning more about what that guy did. He had his hands on so much of uh, of what we now have as uh, as an amazing inheritance, whether it be our public lands or wildlife populations and, and game laws that allow them to be sustainable or the fair chase, you know, the ethics and morals that we, that we have around how we pursue game. Um, he was involved in so much of that stuff. And, and I haven't read Theodore Rex yet, but I have read many, including um, one I'd recommend the wilderness warrior, which it's a yeah. heavy one. It's a tough one to get through. If you're not like really devoted to wanting to know everything about Theodore Roosevelt related to the wild, uh, the wild environment and conservation. But if you are really interested in that, it goes so into depth of, of everything he had that he was involved with. And um, you'll walk away from that book knowing a lot, uh, and you'll appreciate what he did a lot more. Um, another one that I'm actually reading right now is called The Naturalist, which is another look at Theodore yep. Roosevelt from a natural history standpoint, but a little more focused on his experiences in nature and his focus on understanding them from a natural history perspective, from like a, you know, uh, how to observe, collect, and even, you know, send some of these specimens to museums and different things, but it really goes into detail about a lot more of his outdoor experiences and ventures. And, and through those stories, it does talk a little bit about some of the politics and some of the different things he achieved in office, but um, that's an interesting perspective too. Um, and then if you're a hunter and you want to just understand TR from a hunting perspective, his books that he wrote are really fantastic too. He was a really a really great writer. Not him. He was great at so many things. Um, but the wilderness hunter is a great one. And, um, hunting trips of a ranchman, I think is another, uh, that 
that are great, really compelling, interesting stories that he tells um, that really put you right back there in western North Dakota in 1884 and, and, and understand what that was like. Um, so those are all additional recommendations I throw out there. So, um, Well, on, just to add to that topic, uh, I'm not sure if you actually got to read Volume 1 of Honor Huntsman yet, but we have the added benefit of uh, having the guidance of one Simon Roosevelt, who's actually TR's great-great-grandson. Um, I met him a few years ago and sort of in the beginning stages of this venture and um, he, you know, at the, at the right time I asked if he would want to help advise us and he said, I'll do you one better. I'd, I'd like to not only advise, but, you know, be, be a contributor. So we have him as a columnist and he's definitely having a major hand in helping us guide, uh, you know, helping guide us in the, in the right direction and, and sort of adhering to some of those principles and, but then sort of modernizing them where they need to be modernized. And so, um, you know, he's definitely somebody who's, who's had a, a very, um, uh, large behind the scenes role doing so. Yeah. It's an honor for sure. I did see that, and I thought that was that was very cool. So that's a that's a perfect segue then to my next question, which is, what should we be looking forward to in the next issue and in the future, and and where can people find all this stuff? I guess, and I don't know if Tyler, if you want to take the first stab at that, or, or anyone else. Sure. So I think that um, you know right now we're really trying we're we're moving trying to move more towards a subscription model um we're we're releasing two a year we're hoping 2019 to release three a year um but right now we're moving into volume two which we're hoping to release um you know in the fall probably in september october area somewhere in there depending on how hard of a time charles and i have wrangling all these contributors um but that is going to be themed around public lands and um i think it's a very important issue right now to discuss on very on, on several levels um, but we also expand, expanding a little more into the international arena. So we had a lot of feedback from, you know, people who ordered the magazine said, Hey, are you going to do stories besides the United States? And the answer to that is yes. Um, we're going to start to scale that up a little bit in the next issue. Um, but in the context of public land, because we are blessed with, uh, you, know, you know, a vast area of public land in the United States that most hardly anywhere else in the world has. And so what are the situations like in other parts of the world where that doesn't exist? What are the pros? What are the cons? You know, what, what can we take away from that as Americans with, with this inheritance of, of a wealth of lands? Uh, and then what, what issues, current issues, whether they're political or legislative or um, local, are, are imperative right now? And what do we need to know about them? And then what, if anything, can we do about them? So, you know, not only are we trying to present topics, but we, wherever possible, we want to present sort of some action items on how people could be involved or, uh, you know, improve the situation in some way or another. Would you guys add anything else, uh, Charles or Brad? That's a clear no, I think. Tyler nailed it. (laughs) Well, Charles, I think, you know, and Charles is, you know, your, your background is a little more related to the ecology side and, and helping us bridge the gap with, as you said, across the aisle. And so maybe talk a little bit about our strategy there. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the, um, one of the many drivers that I think are kind of, uh, shaping issue two for us is, is thinking about storytellers and, and kind of, um, staples in the hunting community that will, further our ability to build bridges. And I, and one of the things that we're going to do is, is obviously, you know, be connecting and working with some of these, um, 
household names in the hunting industry because they have so much to share. They have so much uh, history with public lands. They have so many, um, you know, rich and smart perspectives that, that will add a lot to the broader narrative. But we also want to include voices. We also will include voices and stories of people who have a hand and a foot in kind of different worlds, whether it's the confluence of outdoor recreation and hunting or even surf culture and hunting or food culture and hunting. Um, and we, we want to tell stories that bring us back to the essence of modern huntsman and bring us back to the essence of issue two public lands. But we also want to point out and really celebrate the diversity of people who all have a stake in public lands and who, you know, have hunting as this kind of common thread and hunting, as we've talked about uh, on this podcast is, is this pretty uh, dynamic, um, you know, uh, activity uh, mindset, um, you know, approach. And, and we aim to, to paint it and, you know, in as diverse of a light as, as it is. Um, so we're really excited to kind of bring some, maybe not atypical, but some just kind of um, some different, uh, voices to the table that'll that'll make the the whole issue that much more rich and and holistic well uh that sounds it sounds like based off of what the both of you shared that uh we've got a lot to look forward to with issue two i can attest to the fact i have the first volume here in my hands it is a beautiful piece of work you guys really just just the the physical nature of it itself is beautiful but then also the content i think you guys did a great job of of curating both thoughtful stories and articles and beautiful photography i mean it it is definitely a um I don't know if it's a pleasure to behold. It is something that really is a, is a really well done piece of media related to what we all love so much, which is hunting and garnering our food from wild places. So um, I'm glad that you guys are, are doing this, that you're sharing a, a different way to think about and communicate and um, interact with hunting. I think it's, it's needed. It's worthwhile. And uh, I've been enjoying it. So I'm looking forward to what you guys have up next. And Brad, if people want to pick up a copy of Volume 1 or if they want to subscribe for future issues or if they want to follow what you guys are doing online, where can they do all this stuff? Yep. You can go to our website at modernhuntsman.co. And to subscribe, you can either just click on the little button right there in the center or it's uh, modernhuntsman.co slash subscribe. And uh, as always, people can check us out on Instagram at Modern Huntsman um, or, or on our Facebook page. Terrific. Well, we will link to all that stuff. And um, I really enjoy this conversation, guys. Thank you for, for taking the time to, to talk about this stuff. Yeah, thanks for having Thank us. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having us. And that will do it. Quick reminder, if you haven't yet, we would love it if you could leave a rating or review on iTunes. It would be amazing if you could subscribe to this podcast there as well and subscribe to the Wired Hunt YouTube channel. Lots coming up there. I just published uh, my first piece of content documenting my 2017 hunting season, talking through the first hunt of the year. And later this week, I'll have a new video coming out that talks about my plan and what happened there in late October when I went for my next strike after this deer called Holyfield. So that might be interesting. You can check that out over on YouTube. Otherwise, just want to thank all of you for joining us for this podcast, for tuning in, for considering these different ideas and perspectives. I found it really interesting. I hope you did too. 
And until next time, I hope you'll stay wired to hunt.